Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist, and now a health coach based in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. I started this podcast in 2020 to help you live a better life, and today you might walk away from this episode thinking your mind was blown, but my conversation with paleontologist Dr. Bill Schindler on what to eat is a highlight of my year. He's the man behind eatlikeahuman.com and the book of the same name, and you'll get to meet him right after this. I am so excited to introduce you to a new sponsor of the Lisa Fisher Said podcast, but not a new name to those of you in central Arkansas. You will say, huh, yes, I know about this. It's Marlsgate. Marlsgate is the property just 15 minutes from downtown Little Rock. That is the Greek Revival property built in the 1800s, guys, and it is still maintained in mint condition. Now, only the third owners have it. Martha Ellen and Bo Talbot bought it in 2017 and with tender love, take care of it because you know what? It's their personal home and they can open it to you to the right person who wants to have their event at a treasure. That's what this property is. And they maintain the grounds, the house. They can seat up to or accommodate up to 500 people with the the kitchen alone is 2,500 square feet because it is a working kitchen for events and things. Guys, it's a beautiful property. Go to their website. You can see the video that I produced and you can find out more. If you want to have an event there, reach out to me. I can get you with the Talbots. I'm having an event there in December, a cocktail party, because Christmas at Marlsgate will be off the charts this year. It's back and it's better than ever. Marlsgate.com. I love it when people do what I say. That's the name of my podcast, Lisa Fisher Said. Why'd you do it? Because Lisa Fisher Said. Well, that's what people say now when they go to Akel's Carpet One. Akel's Carpet One has three locations in central Arkansas. Now, the Akel family's been in the flooring business a long time. They are under different names in different states. So you may be shopping with them where you are. But I'm putting my focus on the folks here because Richard Akel, you might see him at one of the stores. You might see Erica. Courtney might be at the store in Florida. Yeah, these people know what they're doing when it comes to flooring. And I know that because I'm thinking of two people right now who just built brand new homes, used Akel's Carpet One for everything. Such satisfied clients, customers. They will definitely be back. Uh, my producer, Darren Clanton, used Akel's for all the beautiful flooring. He said nobody could beat the price that they have. They uh, provide the insulation service after the sale. Even the tile in his home is from Akel's Carpet One. And another family there in North Arkansas, it's a long way, but Erica Akel went there and spent time with them, walked through the property, and all of their flooring just came from Akel's Carpet One. You need to do the same thing. You will be a satisfied customer for life, and you'll probably start a podcast so you can tell people about it. Akelscarpetone.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, Bill Schindler, we're going to solve the problems of the world right now because you're going to teach us how to eat like a human. But I need to know what got you to this point where you're a fit man in his 30s uh, <laughs> sitting in his uh is study telling people how to live their lives. <laughs> well, first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm super excited to talk about our, our take on food and diet and health and nutrition, which we call eating like a human. Uh, what got me here? Well, there's a, there's a ton of different things that, that did. And, and like anybody in this space, I think it really started, not anybody, most people in our space were really trying to solve their own problems and their own issues and are, yep. are so excited about the steps that they've mm -hmm. taken and, the, and, and the, the differences that they've made. They want to share it with the world. So uh, the quick version, we can dive into anything that you want to uh, a lot deeper later, is that I really grew up with an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. And it was, it was strange because my parents, you know, I grew up in the seventies and eighties. I'm not 30, I'm 50. Uh, but okay. <laughs> my, you but thank good. you. My You're parents, well preserved because you eat like a human. That's right. Uh, my parents were doing 
the best that they could with the information that they had in the 70s. I mean, we took all butter right. out of our diets. We ate eggs once a week. Mm-hmm. You know, we replaced any red meat with with, uh, with chicken breast and, you know, all of the things. Um, yes. And I was eating a ton of carbs and I woke up every morning ravenous, ravenous. The first mm-hmm. thought on my mind every morning was how do I get rid of the mm-hmm. pains in my stomach because I'm so hungry and <laughs> yes. I would just start eating. And then I, I obviously, you know, and, and, and the healthy things to eat then was toast or cereal or whatever. And then by 10 o'clock, I was hungry. By noon, I was hungry. By three o'clock, I was hungry. By dinner, I was eating. I was having a snack before bed. And I yes. was overweight. I was upset with the way that my body looked. And I thought about it all day long. Every time I passed by a mirror, I would look and suck my gut in. I mean, I'm talking nine and 10 years old. And I view at that time I viewed food as something that made me look ugly and made other kids make fun of me, not something that nourished oh. me. Then oh. I got to high school and I, in some way, I became an athlete. And I don't know how with the height that I had, but I became an athlete and I loved, I loved competing. I, I, I dove deep into wrestling. And I became a, a fairly successful wrestler. I ended up wrestling for Ohio State, one of the best Division One schools in the country awesome. at the time and still is. Um, the Ohio State the University. The Ohio State mm-hmm. University. And right. I looked the part of an athlete. I was fit. I had a six-pack. I was, you know, I was built, but I was still incredibly unhealthy. And my relationship with food went from something that I viewed as made me ugly to something that I was scared of because the relationship between wrestlers and food, especially then was really problematic. In fact, it was so problematic. My second or third year in college, three different college wrestlers died that year um, because of, 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 of losing weight. And it's, it's disordered eating, right? Oh, at that point it is or eating, eating disorder because you're trying to cut weight to the nanogram and I'm sure there's a lot of binging and purging, a lot of unhealthy habits that accompany that, I would think. We can talk about it in depth in a little bit. I'm happy to because it's that scary. But I was just okay. a quick version is I was losing 22 pounds in a day and a half every week. Stop it. Stop it. 100% water weight. In a day and a half, I would lose 20, an average of 22 pounds. And then okay. I would go sky, skyrocket back up. By the t- you know, the craziest part was that when, by the time I stepped on the wrestling mat, because we would do weigh-ins on Friday nights usually, and then we'd wrestle on Saturday. So I had all night Friday night and all wow. Saturday morning to binge. I stepped on the mat 22 pounds heavier. So did my opponent. <laughs> wow. The whole thing was, thankfully, um, it's a little bit safer now. A lot of laws uh, regulations, NCAA regulations have changed, but it's still okay. the, the point that I'm trying to make is that my relationship with food still now, now I'm in my twenties was not a healthy one. I didn't view food as something that nourished me. I was now scared of food. When I stopped being a, a college athlete, you know, stopped competing, all the weight poured back on more than it ever had. And I was, I was suffering. I mean, not only suffering with body image issues, but restless leg syndrome, all sorts of digestive issues. I mean, it was, I, I was just completely unhealthy. This entire time I had nutritionists. I had, I was wrestling for a division one program. I had doctors. I had all sorts of people telling me what I should be eating and none of it was working. Then I was trying all the different, you know, I tried South Beach. I tried all the different diets. None of that worked. And it wasn't until I finally stepped back and realized that two things, two threads in my life that I was, um, I was, I was, it always been threads in my life. One was that my father had me outside hunting, fishing, trapping, camping, hiking, all of those things my entire life, connecting me with the world around me in a very special way. Uh, that and my my training at this point, I was I was an archaeologist. I still am. Um, I was uh, I was a professor for over twenty years at several different universities. I was uh, archaeologist, anthropologist. I studied ancestral diets. And I realized that maybe I should stop listening to all these fad things that were in the news and really just take a look at what our diets were really like over the past literally several million years. Uh, What were the diets like that built us as humans? And maybe that's where I should start. And when I started to dive down that rabbit hole, both of those things together, connecting with the environment and the world around me and understanding what our ancestors were truly, truly eating that I, I was able to, I, I don't even want to say regain my health because I never was really that healthy, but I'm 50 yeah. years old yeah. now and I am in the best shape of my life. And that includes in, from in my 20s when I was a Division One athlete. Amazing. So you move from the science of medicine because you had 
medical people around you, because that's a moving target, as we know. <laughs> Trust the science. The last three years, has it changes every day, right? But you move to, well, history, anthropology, what our ancestors ate. Mm-hmm. And you, you started twirling your mustache going, wait, I think what they did was smarter than what we're doing because they had no processed foods. They were out in the sunlight every day, all day. They had no sunscreen. Mm-hmm. Shocking, isn't it? You know, you, you you started pulling back the the layers of the onion really before any of us then. So do you have your PhD? I do. I so do. you are one driven individual. I am I mean, a you driven don't, individual, yes. Not, not a slacker there <laughs> at the Schindler household. So uh, tell me, what was your eureka moment then in studying what our ancestors ate? Because we can look at their bones. Mm-hmm. We can look at uh, how their fossils and that their hours look terrible. You know, we say they say now at the mortuaries what the bodies look like, especially depending on if they took any certain medicines in the last few years to prevent an illness, that their bodies have, um, it's been a different story in mortuaries now than it was probably 50 or hundred years ago. So what was your aha moment? So, all right, I want to paint this picture properly and in the right way. I spent most of that, that, story I just told you, most of my life trying to, you know, get in shape and, and, and get healthy, asking the question what I should eat. Now, I literally remember a moment, right. and this is this is the part I want to paint properly, but I was probably 12 years old or so. And I remember I was in my parents' or bathroom in my house where I grew up and I, had, I turned the shower on. I was about to go into the shower. So the water's running and I, lit- I had to go to the bathroom. So I'm, I'm literally sitting on the toilet, but I'm naked because I'm about to get into the shower. And I remember just looking down at myself, like literally physically looking down at myself and just seeing the rolls of fat. And I remember vividly g- taking my hands and grabbing the rolls, like almost in tears and just thinking to myself, oh my God, if somebody could just tell me what to eat all my problems oh, will be solved. Like, just heart. tell me what to eat. Who can't somebody just tell oh. me what to eat? And that mindset is the same mindset I think so many people have. So, okay, what do I eat? Just tell me what to mm-hmm. eat and I'll do it. And and I'm, there was two two problems with that uh, with that mindset. One is, you know, my weight issue was only a small problem. That in, in other words, it wasn't the only thing that was impacting my entire life. Like the the, the, the um, the ignorance of if I if I get skinny, all my problems will be solved is just right. silly. But that mm-hmm. aside, the the part that I think is really important in this conversation and, and really has become the the driving message foundation of all the research that I'm I'm doing now is that it was the wrong question. What I should eat. That that's a question that other animals ask themselves, like they don't hire a nutritionist, right? They ask themselves what I should eat and then they go eat it and they're fine because they are physically designed to uh, eat a certain diet, right? Cows are physically designed to eat, you know, tough vegetable materials and their palate, their teeth, their dentition, the way they digest, the fourth chamber, all those things make it all work. Mm -hmm. And we can say that about just about any animal except for some of our domesticated animals, but any wild animal, I know a child's right. not wild, but any wild animal right. eats a diet that they're physically designed to safely and efficiently nourish their bodies with. But humans are different. And this is the Eureka moment. Um, uh, several years ago, several, I don't know, what it, what my kids now, are, my oldest daughter's 19. So it was about 17, 16, 17 years ago. Now you have to remember, I, um, was diving when I dive down rabbit holes, I dive really hard and fast. And one of the uh, specialties in the world of archaeology that I was focused on was something called primitive, t- or sorry, experimental archaeology, which is where an archaeologist, you know, we pull things out of the ground, bits of pieces of rock or pottery or whatever, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years old in the, in, in, in the case of stone tools. And we have to make sense of what that little bit of stone meant. And one of the things that experimental archaeologists do is we're trained in primitive technologies and we learn how to replicate different types of technologies and how to use them. And then we can run experiments and try to say, okay, well, that was part of a knife that operated like this and it was a sufficient order. So I was in the midst of, of, of really training hard to, to uh, be skilled at some of these primitive technologies. And I dedicated myself to at least one hour, usually more, every single day of 
banging on rocks to make stone tools. I'm learning how the fracture mechanics work. And I know this sounds wow. silly, but I'm in the, so when I'm in the, we, at this point we have, you know, three kids really young. We're here in Maryland. Um, we'd moved away from our family so I could take a job teaching at Washington college. We have no support structure. Uh, and I'm in the garage at night banging on rocks hours on end. And my wife, Christina, I, I, she comes out and she's like, listen, you need to come in the house. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be in in a minute. She's like, no, no, no. You need to like bring all this, this passion, all of this stuff. You're, you need to bring it in the house. Like, why be so passionate about something if it's not helping the people that you love the most? And I'm like, you're you're 100 right. But now it's like, how do I like make banging rocks impact my family? Like, I don't understand. So, but she was right, 100 right. So I went on a couple of weeks and I do my best thinking in the shower and one morning in the shower, and this is the Eureka moment. I'm leading up to it, probably a way too long story. I'm in the shower and all of a sudden I had the epiphany that almost every single prehistoric, I'm sorry, almost every single prehistoric technology ever invented. And I mean, for the past three and a half million years of, of technology, almost every one of them has something to do with food. Like getting food, processing food, <laughs> storing food, redistributing food. So you have yeah. millions of years of technological innovation. I mean, literally the Albert Einsteins of our species and our ancestral species for millions of years, all focused on creating technologies that have something to do with food. Uh, wow. Like I know the diets, the changing diets we had over time correlate directly with our evolution and our, our, our body growth, our brain growth, our population growth, all these other things, you know, all these things that are happening are in direct, um, you know, correlation with our changing diets. And if the technological innovations impact our diets to that degree as well, then there's a strong link between technology and food and diet and health and evolution and all these sorts of things. So what I've realized is, and this is a long, long uh, story to say this, humans have began to outgrow their digestive tracts when we started to make our first tools. You know, we humans, one of the things that we do is processed food before it goes into our mouths. All the work that other animals' right. bodies do to make food safe and make it nourishing in, you know, inside their bodies, we rely on technologies to do that before we eat it. So you know, simple, basic, but powerful technologies like stone tools, which cut, or fire, which cooks, or fermentation, or all these sorts of things are actually required in our diets today to nourish our bodies because when mm -hmm. we started creating these technologies several things happen at the same time that are really really strange one is we start an influx of incredible nutrition bioavailable nutrient-dense safe nutrition that helps support massive body and brain growth like literally we are here the way we are now with these huge brains and these huge bodies because of the diets that have changed over time and the technology that allowed us to eat those diets because the reality is most of that food we can't deal with on our own. Like our bodies are not designed to safely and efficiently break that food down and get nutrition from it. So what's the, cra the crazy part is our bodies and our brains are growing exponentially over time, but at the same time, our teeth are getting smaller and our right. guts are getting smaller. So the two and our things- jaws. Our jaws. Haven't our jaws change too? Yeah. Our jaws get smaller, our teeth get smaller, our uh, our guts, literally our entire digestive tract is shrinking. Mm -hmm. It should be the opposite. Like, it, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the only things that we have that allow us to, to um, biologically break down food are our teeth and our digestive tracts. And if we need that much more nutrition to fuel these huge brains and these huge bodies, then everything should be getting bigger and more efficient. But it, the reality is it's getting smaller and going away. And that's because we're doing all of this work with these tools before we put it in our bodies. And just think about, you know, anybody thinking like, okay, this sounds a little bit strange, like I don't get it. And you're sitting there and you just had breakfast today or you had lunch today. Think about all the technological inputs that actually went in to creating that food, whether it's a blender or a food processor or an oven or a microwave, or even something as simple as a kitchen knife. All of those tools help do something to that food. And if they're used the right way, they help make that food more nutrient dense and more bioavailable. So the Schindler kids, while um, some people go to the pool for fun, your kids are out in the back eating clover <laughs> and running through the grass and flossing their teeth with grass. Actually, my kids do quite a bit of foraging. My son does quite a bit of hunting. But here, here's another thing that's really cool about uh, when, when I had that epiphany and I realized the power of technology, 
And, and to kind of put a, a, a button on, you know, what I was trying to get to with this too, is the question I've been asking my whole life that, that I was never able to answer because it's actually inanswerable for humans is what I should eat. You have to, yeah. ask, humans yeah. have to ask this question, what should I eat combined with the question, how should I eat it? Because for, for oh. example, um, you know, a gallon of milk, and that same milk made into traditional cheese are two completely different foods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a handful of wheat berries and a loaf of sourdough bread are two completely different foods. One would make mm-hmm. you very, very sick. One, you could argue, could potentially yep, right. nourish you, right? So yep. all these things are – so it, you have to have – excuse me, both of these things combined, especially when it comes to, um, excuse me, the plant world. Uh, so one, when I really started to, to realize this, I realized I needed to know a lot, a lot more about food, diet, health, cooking, culinary world, filling gaps in the archaeological record. So we started doing a ton of ethnic, my, my family and I, a ton of ethnographic work. And we started traveling around the world, living and working with indigenous and traditional groups and families wow. and learning how wow. they employ technologies to make food as safe and nourishing as can be. So where, where, I mean, where on the planet do you think they're doing it right? The least <laughs> civilized. No. Uh, no. Well, not the U.S., not the West. I mean, no. the Industrial Revolution was a great thing for so many. But what it, we know, what it's done to our food supply, it has bastardized what is typically what started. I mean, I guess it started as good foods. And now we have foods sold in boxes with barcodes and in bags, as Dr. Ben Bickman says, to stay away from. Because mm. what it does, you know, if you're looking at insulin, is something connected to longevity. But where on the planet then, is it the most primitive people that have the best diets? In, you know, in, in a very broad general sense, absolutely. I mean, one of the things yeah. that the Industrial Revolution did besides create really junky food and we're, we're reaping <laughs> right. the benefits of it now, is it right. also was sort of that last nail in the coffin with disconnecting us from where our food comes from and how it's prepared. I mean, we've right. ne- the, the, the agriculture revolution did that to some degree, but the industrial revolution turned, you know, the agriculture revolution turned us from hunter gatherers into food producers and with only a yes. segment of the population producing the food. And then the industrial revolution turned almost the rest of everybody else into consumers with this huge long food chain. And now we're stuck with having to hire people to tell us how to eat. And we're stuck with telling people telling us where our food comes from, where we, most of the questions we have, we could, we could answer ourselves if we can actually make that reconnection. And that's exactly what these indigenous and traditional groups and families and cultures around the world have is they have that direct connection to their food. If the person, you know, if the person eating the food didn't get it, it, it was their sister or their father or their mother that actually did, yeah. right? And then somebody else in the family, they, they saw it and they smelled all the preparation. We were um, actually recently in Sardinia uh, oh. uh, about two, about a month and a half ago. And that's a longevity capital, we right? We were According in the to Peter epicenter Kino. of the first okay. blue zone ever identified yeah. in Villa Grande. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason we were in Villa Grande was because we were um, learning about this traditional – uh, cheese that's made out of the stomach of an unweaned goat. And wow. what we found was the amount of animal-based foods that they eat was off the charts. I mean, and we were actually even with families. Who- really? Because I thought the thinking of the Blue Zones and not a Tia's book, but um, the other guy, the Blue Zone author, I thought he was saying, because I'm a I'm a meat-based eater and, you know, according to him, I'm going to die soon. But I thought he was saying in some of that, that they ate less meat. They, and he does say that. And okay. That's what I thought. We were actually the family. We were one of the families we were with uh, was uh, recently interviewed for a BBC uh, special that was coming out about the blue zone. And she, they're like, we don't understand what they're, like they're talking about minestrone soup. Like we don't even eat hardly eat like minestrone soup is a big thing. We don't even know what they're talking about. We were there, and there's a couple really cool things, but um, it's not as simple just saying they eat meat. This is sort of that, that, that how uh, thing. Everywhere that we went, I mean, I don't care who we visited them for 10 minutes. We sat down and spent the day with somebody. The first thing I did was, let me bring you some of our charcuterie. And everybody has, everybody that we were with at least has their own pigs. They raise their own pigs. These pigs are raised on acorns and chestnuts and olives, and they right. run around, you know, in the woods. And they all 
butcher their pigs. They make uh, prosciutto. They make pancetta. They make all of these mm. things. And you sit down. The first thing they give you is meat. The second mm. thing they give you is everybody makes their own cheese. They have goats. Most of them have goats. Some people have sheep, but mo- mostly it's goats. I'm sorry, but goats and sh- goats and sheep together. But uh, a lot of it's sheep in different parts. So they're all making their own cheese. And so you sit down and the first thing you get is meat. The second thing you get is cheese. And then when we have big meals, it's literally the entire animal. One of the most beautiful things wow. about this, um, this uh, cheese that we made out of the stomach of the goat was that we took the stomach out and hung it up and it just naturally makes cheese. But then other than the gallbladder and the feet and the skin, we ate every part of that animal. I mean, every part of that animal, the small intestines with the contents in it still. It had, we, we did clean out the large intestines, but we ate them as well. We ate testicles the, for the resticles, everything, or whatever. liver cancer. Everything. So brain, thymus, kidney, everything. We ate that is shocking. all of it. All of the, all That's of it. shocking to us. I mean, but I know it's not shocking to them. But, and it was a beautiful thing the way that they did it. I mean, it was the, the respect, the, the gratitude, the nutrition, all yeah. of it was just an actually beautiful thing. It wasn't that they didn't eat vegetables. They did. We had basil. We had olives. We had some tomatoes. Um, yeah. But really, so that was what, about it. Okay. What do you think their food radius is? Five miles? Less than that. If you could put, no, it's less. Really? It's less. Um, everybody wow. in this village, they have communal land around the village. And it, it was, I say village, it actually was like a small city. Um, everybody has plots of land that they call them orchards, but they have fruit trees, they have vegetables planted, they have goats or sheep grazing. Some people have cows, there's not many cows. Um, and that's that's what they do. I mean, they, they we ate so many meals with people that 99 to 100% of the food on the table, they grew and raised themselves. I mean, all of it, other than maybe salt, like literally all of it. They made the wine, even the wine there was made of a special grape that's supposed to be better for you or whatever. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But here's the cool thing. The, the part they did get right was that the longevity is real. The family that one of the families you spent the most time with, um, the, the man of the household, his father is 93 and like h- hikes up and down the mountain every single day. The next door neighbor is awesome? 103 years old and lives on the second floor of a house completely by himself, walks up and down the steps by himself. I mean, it is unbelievable. But it isn't just the food, which is also really cool. Um, they walk all the time. I mean, they're always walking. We showed up by the time we got there, the roads, the roads in Sardinia are like this. And we were, by the time we finally arrived to the people we're staying with, we were exhausted. Like I was ready to take a nap and we get out of the car and they're like, okay, let's go for a walk. And so we went for a walk for like two hours every day. They're always walking. The other thing they will tell you is everybody's nice. Like the, the fact that they sit and, and spend time with one another and have real, real conversations with one another and are kind to one another. They're like, you want to look at how, why we're as old as we are and live to this is because we're actually nice. And that's, and that's community too, yes. right? Isn't that part of the, one of the tenets is community. Now, do they, cause you know, parts of Europe, you go to Europe, I mean, they're smoking like freight trains. Are they tobacco users in Sardinia? We... It's probably local. That's a great question. <laughs> they we, grew it a block from their house. <laughs> we didn't see much tobacco use okay. other than in the major cities, uh, but we did. We didn't see much at all. We didn't see much. And then, so longevity, long marriages. Are they the husband of one wife and not a bunch of, you know, wives throughout the years and step families, which is stressful. Not that there's anything wrong with it. That's a very, very good question. I didn't, and, and listen, we were only there for a few weeks, so I don't want to yeah. paint a picture that we're the experts on Sardinia, right. but the Understood. people that we were with, um, I, I, it didn't seem like they're, everybody was still on their first marriage and living, you know. That's living. awesome. But the other thing that's uh, interesting too is for, you would imagine if you're in the part of the world that has the oldest people in it, you'd see, you should see nursing homes everywhere, but you don't, there's none, there's none. And a lot of that is because people either they're, they can stay up by themselves, like the 103-year-old man I was talking about, or they're taken in by their family. 
Right, of course. And they're which is all how living in, in the same right. place. But and, and the other thing that I think is very important is that we shouldn't. Like one of the things that I like to say is I, I do a lot of foraging. I do a lot of foraging tours, and we talk about wild plants and stuff. And one of the things I say is when, when you're thinking about diet, you know, uh, vegetable use in the past or plants in the past, don't like imagine that you're walking into the gro- the produce section of your grocery store, and that's right. you know, it's nothing like that. Right. It's the same thing here with. Um, the last third of your life in these areas. Don't look at don't look at what we see in the modern Western world with people that are in their sixties or their seventies or their eighties and have that be the picture of what these elderly people are in a place like Sardinia. Because here people die for the last third of their life. Like they're literally right. dying. Like things are happening and they, you know, they're not they don't have a quality of many of them don't have a quality of life because of the state of their health. These people are living into their nineties and into their, into their hundreds and then keeling over dead, which is exactly the way that I want to go, which is exactly what happens yeah, with wild animals, sure. wild animals with yeah. incredible lives, whatever the lifespan is of that animal. And then they keel over dead. That's the way it should be. I love the messaging behind dogtalktv.com. You've heard me talk some time about what Pat Becker Wallace has done. She's an Arkansan who lived in Oklahoma a long time. So a majority of her life and her charitable work, and there's a lot of it, people, has been devoted to providing forever homes for uh, these dogs and helping the rescues. Now, the shelters often get city and county money, but the rescues do not. So therefore, she has devoted much of her life's work and writing books that match the perfect person with the perfect breed, meaning your temperament. It works better with certain dog breed temperaments and then educating. That's really what she wants to do. Educate people on dog ownership and responsible dog ownership. So if you go to dogtalktv.com, you can order some of the books. I have them here. I gave some to a charity. I'm getting more to give to my daughter, granddaughter's school. Haven't done that yet. I've been busy. But when I do that, I know that the kids there can check out a book and learn more about dog breeds. In fact, if you have a child who's interested in writing children's books, they have a competition where you can find out more and it's all in their website. They have a children's book contest tab at dogtalktv.com. Know that you are helping the rescues in both Arkansas and Oklahoma when you go there, dogtalktv.com. Why is the food at David's Burgers just better than any other burger place in central Arkansas? Well, I can tell you, I've been a customer. I've been dining there for the 10 years they've been open, 10 locations now in central Arkansas, and it's the beef. And their passion is beef. They only use grade A Chuck Choice beef. They purchase in large slabs. It's fresh, never frozen. They butcher the slabs themselves at the local commissary into steaks, like the ones that you can find there at the stores. Yeah, you can actually buy some of the beef now at David's Burgers, davidsburgers.com. And it's just really good food. Now, the potatoes that they use, they don't use any additives or things that the competition uses. It's just Idaho potatoes that they cut and they fry and they bring them to your table. In fact, you could eat your weight and fries and you can get free ice cream at the end. The customer service at David's Burgers, it's second to none. Nobody can do it like they do at David's. Remember, they're closed on Sunday so you can worship with your family. And this is a family uh, the David is the patriarch of the family, but the Bubba's family, they give to charitable organizations, especially when it deals with adoption and fostering because they are an adoptive family. Check them out online. We'd love to have you in central Arkansas. Eat there. It's davidsburgers.com. Right. Well, wild animals. Yeah. Because wow. as you said, domesticated animals now have an obesity rate. They have obesity, cancer, ours. heart disease. They got all the same that's issues right. we all, have. That's right. Uh, Dr. Jason Fung always says, if you notice, there are no fat animals in the wild. There are no fat zebra. There are no fat, you know, and it, it goes and he goes back to satiety hormones because he says we're hormonally wired to eat and to stop eating and that you circumvent or corrupt um, satiety hormones when you have a dog at home, when you're feeding him table scraps and his kibble. Mm-hmm. And same thing with your kids and with ourselves. Right. 
So we that's all out of balance. So the people in Sardinia clearly, plus the sunlight, you know, if we know that sunlight yeah. is such nourishing, so nourishing, it, it it's vital for our existence. And they're not stuck in offices, you know, in front of screens all day. I mean, there are just so many uh, different benefits. So if we do start talking about then looking at our eating as We should not replicate what's in a grocery store because I'm in Arkansas. We don't grow kiwi on this continent. I shouldn't be eating kiwi. I mean, can you sum it up that simply? I mean, is that oversimplifying it? Yeah, there's a there's a couple things I think are important for us to realize. And I like I don't want to paint a, um, you know, kumbaya sort of tree hugging picture of the past, this, this romantic that everything was amazing all the time and 3 million years, it was amazing. And then all of a sudden everything went to hell. I don't want to paint that picture because there there were problems in the past. People starved, people were malnourished, people died, right? right? There was a, people were murdered. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened in the past too, but um, what I'm confident of is the general trend in our diet over the past million years and the technologies that our ancestors created to do something to that food before we ate it was focused on creating three things in our food system, safety, nutrient density, and bioavailability. Now, did everybody do that? No, but the people that did, right, the groups that did and did it really, really well are the ones that had really healthy babies that also had really healthy babies and they grew and their groups grew stronger and they had larger populations. And they're the ones that are actually left to tell the story and pass that information on. And the other ones that didn't just didn't, right. It wasn't always intentional, but the ones that did it really well, did it really well. And their bodies changed and and, and actually created us as as modern day homo sapiens. So that's um, I think a really important thing for us to understand. So safety, nutrient density, and bioavailability in our food, we can get that in two different ways. Um, one is plants in general, and I know there's a big, big push against plants right now in, in some and some of the dietary space. And I get a lot of it. Um, I have really good friends that are that eat absolutely zero plants whatsoever. And I, my I eat a very animal based diet myself, but I do include plants um, selectively that are processed the right way. But the idea that all plants have some level of toxin in them, in my mind, is entirely true. Oh, okay. hundred percent. Every plant has some level of toxin. Some of them will kill us. Some of them are fairly benign, not a very big deal. That's what Saladino, you know, and a bunch of those people say that. And people are like, that is just so extremist to say that plants want to kill you. But he stands by a statement. Well, and and my uh, Anthony Chafee is a very good friend of mine as well. He says the same thing. But I I, I think a little bit of that message can be restated to land a little bit... um, better with people. Plants aren't trying to kill you. Plants are just trying to defend themselves and produce viable offspring yes. and survive. Yes. And we just happen yes. to be at the the, 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 the poor end of, of that situation. The, the problem is there's a whole lot of plants that um, either, even if they have nutrition, they don't give that nutrition up easily. So we can eat them thinking we're going to get all that nutrition, but it actually passes right through us or a lot of it does, or our bodies have to work extra hard to get at it. And they have issues, toxins, anti-nutrients, phytates, that sort of thing that can cause problems over time. So I, I, I do think most of us are not going to eat a mushroom that kills us tomorrow. And most of us are not going to eat. And if we did, nobody else around us would eat that mushroom, right? And right. we don't have to worry about some plants because – but it's the ones in the middle that we really have to be nervous about and, 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 and take control over. So we can get nutrition in one of two ways. One is we can take the, uh, those plants and let animals who are perfectly designed to consume those plants turn those plants into incredibly easy to digest, bioavailable fat, meat, blood, milk, organs, whatever. Yeah. Or we can replicate what those animals do to that food before it goes into our bodies, right? Whether it's fermentation or soaking or sprouting right. or whatever right. it happens to be. Um, and, or, and in my world, we do a combination of both. So um, when we look at what I think is fascinating to think about is if you look at the technological inputs 
for food and diet and health over several million years. When it comes to plants, and this is all up until the agriculture revolution when everything changes and we have plows and all sorts of things, but and horses drawing them and whatever, and now mechanized labor. But up, up until the agriculture revolution, if we're thinking in our minds, you know, hunter gatherers walking around the landscape, picking things from their environment to eat or hunting it or whatever they're doing, digging it up out of the ground, almost all the technological input needed to include animals in our diet is focused on getting that animal overcoming our physical limitations and allowing it, you know, bows and arrows and boomerangs and traps and nets and snares and fishing hooks or whatever. Once we have that animal, all you need is a sharp edge and you have literally a pile of amazing nutrient dense bioavailable, in most cases, incredibly safe food at your disposal. You don't even have to cook most of it. Cooking helps in some cases, but in general, wow. all this food is there. That's a big statement. With plants, it's the exact opposite. It's very easy to get the plants. Again, I'm not talking about farming. I'm talking about hunter-gatherers, a majority of the existence right. that we had. You know, you, you're picking some things. You Maybe you have a little stick that you dig some roots out of the ground. But for the most part, getting the plants is incredibly easy. All the technological advancements we've had over millions of years, as far as plants are concerned, are focused on, on detoxifying those plants and making the nutrition in those plants available to our incredibly inefficient digestive tracts. So allowing an animal to do that work first really is uh, very efficient on our end. When I walk into the grocery store and I look at the food that's there, I mean, one of the first things is, and I really like the way some people talk about it, you shop the perimeter, you know, you're looking right. at raw materials as, as best you can get them. Um, one of the problems with the, with the American or the modern grocery store is we've taken seasons out of the grocery store. Um, mm -hmm. We've, fooled ourselves into thinking because somebody else decided it should go into a grocery store, it is automatically food. It's automatically mm -hmm. fit for human consumption. That's, right? that's true. And very it doesn't misleading. need anything else. And, and it's very yeah. unfortunate because, listen, I'm not on the eat 20 pounds of bull testicle thing level, right? right. But I Absolutely. am a huge nose to tail um, yeah. uh, you know, advocate and, and, and eating those sorts of things. But the fact that we don't have organs in our American grocery store much anymore, most people don't look at it as food because they don't see it, right? But on the other hand, they'll see a, an apple, you know, in December at the grocery store, they think, oh, well, that, that's food. I, I, I should eat this. Right. The problem with disconnection, uh, the, 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 the huge long food chain that we have and the disconnect we have and uh, from our food and that we have other things such as government subsidies, and, mm -hmm. and all, all the things impacting what's in the grocery store, the price of food in the grocery store, there's nothing we can rely on anymore that is an indicator of, I should be eating this and I should only be eating a little bit of this. A great example, so we have none of these limiting mechanisms anymore. Seasonality was a very important limiting mechanism because certain plants, if you eat it when it's there, you know, when it, when, when it naturally is growing in your area, you, you get not only a little bit of nutrition, but you get maybe some toxins, but well, when that plant is no longer available, you're not ingesting that toxin anymore. Your body can naturally detoxify itself and you can move on. A uh, great example is something like spinach, right? Even, uh, spinach isn't wild, but and, you know, spinach is a very high oxalate containing plant. Yes. If you eat spinach the two weeks out of the year that it would actually grow in your area, probably not a very big deal. But now we have it 365 days in, uh, of the year available in the grocery right. store. It's not very expensive. We call it a superfood. And all of a sudden we have people with, you right. know, oxalate toxicity as a result of it. It's kind of And like, that's things like kidney stones and other things that show that you've had too much, right? Oh, I, I will. Yeah, absolutely. Kidney stones. I will tell you the most dangerous, in my mind, the most dangerous plant toxin facing us today as a population is oxalates. And the reason is because... Uh, one is we don't have those limiting mechanisms anymore. Most of the high oxalate containing plants, we've somehow decided to call them superfoods. I mean, what a PR team kale has. Kale? Almonds? My I will never eat another almond the rest of my life. Even though really? I Really? Even almonds? Okay. Oh, especially almonds. And But uh, almonds are another great example. Let me finish real quick, though. This is really important. Right. Uh, so a lot of my work has been focused on seeing and understanding and learning about how different plants have been traditionally detoxified, not, you know, detoxified before consumption. And I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at that and studying that. The one toxin that I have never found a suitable way to detoxify or get rid of or mitigate the issues of are oxalates. Mm -hmm. And those are one, and, and which you could argue that a mushroom that will kill you within six hours is a very dangerous thing. 
and it is. But it's only dangerous for one person in a group because nobody else will eat that mushroom again. What's, <laughs> right. To me, what's more dangerous are the foods that are in your diet that you don't feel an effect from the day after you eat it or the month mm -hmm. after you eat it, or in some cases, years after you eat it. And then you, you know, it becomes part of your daily routine. You're eating almonds, handfuls of almonds, you're eating all the spinach, you're eating this, you're eating this. And all of a sudden, six, seven, eight years later, you have all these issues. You have kidney stones, you have joint pain, you have mm -hmm. pseudo gout, you have whatever it is, mm -hmm. oxalates coming through your corneas. And you're like, I don't understand what the issue is. And then Right. Well, it's because you've eaten all the spinach. Spinach is fine. I've been eating it my whole life. Well, no, this, this is the issue. That's the problem, right? That's the problem. Um, but so you can't detox. There's no suitable way. I have never found a suitable way to mitigate the issues of oxalates and get rid of them. Fermentation okay. is a great then Give me your list of things Bill Schindler and his family will not eat. And I know it's bio-individuality too at this point. So we're not, you're not making a blanket statement, but sure. you're saying as for me and my house, don't bring an almond over and don't bring spinach or kale. Now, what else? Do you understand I've had major issues with oxalates myself? Um, okay. and, and I will point people to uh, Sally Norton, who is my go-to expert in oxalates. And she wrote a great book called uh, Toxic Superfoods. It came out uh, just about a year ago. Fantastic book, great website. She's amazing. Um, okay. She actually, five-minute conversation with her maybe six years ago or so completely changed my life. But, oh, wow. So she's the go-to. But for okay. me, I yep. will never eat another almond the rest of my life. I never drank okay. it before anyhow, but I will never drink almond milk. Okay. Um, I will never eat almond flour. So uh, the almonds are huge. Okay. Pine nuts are just as almost just as bad. <gasps> Sesame seeds and poppy seeds are off the charts. And I know you're like, oh, well, you only have a little bit. We make in our restaurant, we make uh, everything bagels, everything sourdough bagels. And we had to come up with our own spice blend for it to get poppy seeds and sesame seeds out of it. When I realized that everything bagel gets almost more than a tablespoon worth of these things on the That's top. Right. Um, tahini is nothing but sesame yes. seeds. <laughs> but I have I have some fixes. Don't worry. Um, so sesame okay. seeds, poppy seeds are really high as far as seeds are concerned. As far as nuts are concerned, almonds and pine nuts are two of the highest. As far as uh, vegetables go, spinach is off the charts. Unfortunately, and I hate to say this one because I love them, beets are off the charts. And that's not only beetroot, but also beet greens. Um, those are those are kind of the big ones. Even if a beet's pickled, you don't think it doesn't it make a difference. It, it, it does thing. Don't worry. It does chemically and physically change certain things with the beets for sure, but it doesn't do a thing for the oxalates. Okay. And this isn't to scare anybody. And if you don't have an oxalate issue, I wouldn't suggest like never eat spinach. But I would. It, it, here, here's here's the quick version of this. So oxalates, if you look under a microscope, they look like little tiny shards of glass. And when you take them in, when you ingest them, your body can deal with a certain amount every day and get rid of it. And it's not very much. I think a, a, a spinach salad, an average size spinach salad has three times the amount your body can actually deal with in a given day. So when your body, when you ingest more than your body can deal with, it realizes how dangerous these, this toxin is. And they, they, and they grab them and they sequester them and store them in, in parts of your body to keep them away from other areas. Unfortunately, that's uh, in your extremities, in your joints, if you've experienced a trauma, you know some kind of a, some kind of damage in your body. A lot of times it goes there. It goes in your organ tissues. Unfortunately, a lot of times it goes into your corneas, which is one of the issues that I had, and it, it gets stored there. Over time, can cause massive problems, and not only just pain, but other massive problems. Um, if you realize that you have this issue, um, get taking oxalates out of your diet is one of the ways you can you can deal with it. But one of the problems, if, you, if you're at a level of high oxalate toxicity and you just cold turkey go no oxalates at all, you feel amazing for like two weeks. And then when your body realizes that you're not taking in these oxalates anymore, it starts dumping the oxalates out of where it's been stored and can be massively painful. So the reason I'm saying all this is because if you experience these issues, um, you know, things like kidney stones, or if you, yeah. if you, there's four things that cause gout. The only one we talk about in the, in the modern world right now is uric yes. acid. Right. But oxalates are one of those things. Wow. It's, it's medically termed pseudogout, but it has the same exact symptoms. Okay. So if, if you've been diagnosed with gout and they didn't test you for uric acid 
or if they tested you for uric acid and it isn't at a level that it should be causing this, then at least put in your minds that maybe it's an oxalate issue. And if it is, the diet they tell you to go on <laughs> for, for gout is the exact wrong diet that you should right. be on. Um, and and the other, listen, I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. Just think about what this means. If you have, remember, you should be living this amazing life and killing over dead, right? You shouldn't be, you know, we've normalized, and there's a reason we've normalized it. We've normalized, oh, we're in our 30s and we start walking up the steps and our knees are creaking and we're in our 40s and our feet are swollen in the morning. And maybe you have this joint pain here and also a little bit part of getting old. It's not part of getting old in Sardinia, right? It's part of getting old. And we, it, it's normal because it is normal because we're doing something in our diets and our lifestyle that's wrong. And one of those things is ingesting massive amounts of these oxalates. So if you if you are uh, experiencing some of these symptoms, and typically it happened for me and people I talk to that have some sort of weird pain or weird something, and you go to the doctor and the doctor keeps making you feel like like an idiot because they're like, oh, nothing's wrong with you. But you're like, yeah, I feel this every day, doc, but no, nothing's wrong with you. Think about Look at your diet, look at a list of high oxalate containing foods and start to think about it. For me, it was I, I ate a handful of almonds every day. I mean, I ate a high oxalate diet anyhow, but almonds were my go-to snack. Oh, well, they're, they're great. They're, you know, they got protein, they're nuts, they're natural. They got low right. carbs, handful of nuts, handful of nuts, handful of nuts. And I started having all these symptoms after a while. And it, that was the thing that put me over the edge. But I talk about those limiting mechanisms and just let me give you an example about how silly this is with, with the almonds and how just even a um, little bit of a look to the past, um, even an, an uneducated, you don't have to be an archaeologist to understand some of these things um, and how, how to change your perspective on some of these things. I, when I grew up, when I ate nuts, I ate nuts really once a year. It was Christmas. I went to my grandparents' house and they had a bowl of nuts in the shells with a nutcracker. And I was so excited. They had walnuts and they had almonds and they had pecans and all these things. And I would sit there with a nutcracker for like an hour and I'd get a handful of nuts. That's And and, and those nuts were harvested, dried, roasted, shipped. All this work was already done and I still had to do work to get a handful of nuts. And then nuts were just really shelled nuts were just really expensive in the grocery stores but now we're at a place where you know all these things are limiting mechanisms right you know if you had to go collect those nuts it would take forever if you had to shell those nuts it would take forever if you had to buy a bag of shelled almonds in 1980 you couldn't afford it but huh. now you can buy them at costco and bj's for 10 bucks and yeah. you got you know this many bag of almonds and everybody's telling you almonds are going to solve all your problems and you're sitting there eating handfuls of almonds like <laughs> i did there's nothing that makes sense about eating handfuls of nuts because you couldn't have done it in the past unless you had five people collecting nuts for you and shelling them you weren't going to eat handfuls. you'd be nuts to eat that much nuts is absolutely. what you're saying absolutely sorry it was low-hanging fruit thank you I- uh, <laughs> okay now tell me in your transition then from chubby bill to slim fit bill what what was the magic it wasn't just oxalates that you removed and actually the oxalates came way after i um after self-discovery more self-discovery right after more self-discovery it was kind of the last things that were hanging on i had these weird pains and these weird things that were happening that i finally figured that out a couple things um that became very important one is i wasn't afraid of fat I wasn't afraid of Yay. high quality, amazing yes, fat right. any longer. Right, right, right. And I ditched all the industrial nut and seed oils and I focused on lard, Good. butter, tallow, that sort of thing. So that, yes. that was a huge one. Um, I also started to take a good look at how many carbohydrates were really in my diet and, and, and if they should really be there. And I knocked out most of those. Now, I did a podcast with Paul Saladino and he asked me a – because we have – let me back up. I know I'm all over the place, but let me back up because this is an important piece. So when I really just started to get a handle on my own health uh, and diet through looking, you know, looking through an archaeological lens, it became the standard for our whole family. Like you know, changed the way our whole family yeah, ate. Sure. And that was fantastic. Now the kids are a little bit older. And now we wanted, my wife and I, our whole family really wanted to share all this with as many people as possible. So I wrote the book, Eat Like a Human. But on top of that, we actually, we have a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is where we run, still conduct all sorts of ethnographic and archaeological research. But most importantly, we do a lot of teaching, a lot of classes to empower people to cook uh, like this at home. 
but we also have a restaurant called the Modern Stone Age Kitchen where we actually put it all into practice. And, the uh, Flintstones. It's like the Flintstone it, Kitchen. It is the I Flintstone mean, Kitchen. And I will tell you, it has <laughs> really been amazing. In fact, we just, we, the past two weeks, we're doing renovations and we're expanding. I mean, it is awesome. Awesome. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because part of it is a sourdough bakery. We have a sourdough bakery. Yeah. We don't eat that many grains ourselves. Um, and people like Paul Saladino call me. I'm like, what, what, why do you have a sa- like sourdough bread? Like, what are you doing with bread? Like, right. Tell me about bread. Right. And this is our take on it. I do believe that a very low carb, high animal based diet with a little bit of plants that are processed selectively selected and processed properly is the most nutrient dense, bioavailable and safest diets for humans possible, period, from a biological and nutritional perspective. We also realize, and remember, this is coming through the lens of somebody who had a lifelong struggle with food, diet, and health, who is trying to raise a family as healthy as it can be, and now trying to feed a community on these foods, we realize that there, you know everybody's not going to do that. Even if that is the gold standard, there are so many other things that things in the world of food, the relationship that humans have with food that are equally as nourishing or at least important to keep in mind when we talk about nourishment for humans, because when we eat food, the way we eat food, the way we're nourished, our relationship with food is is couched and embroiled in and all wrapped up in politics and religion and tradition yes. and socioeconomics yes. and all these other things that are and government important. funding. And we have yeah. to meet, meet all those expectations in order to be a truly nourished person. And we're all at different places in our journeys as well, too. So the reason we have a sourdough bakery is not to say, hey, you need to eat sourdough bread. It's to say, hey, if you're going to eat bread, right. this is the safest, most nourishing form of bread that you should be eating or feeding your children with. And because of the fermentation process. The true real, yeah, a, the true, a real yeah. bacterial fermentation. Yeah. It has a smell to it. It's not what you buy at the grocery store. It, it's it, it's bitter almost. It's If it, you like sourdough, you smell it and go, that's the real thing. Absolutely. But it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be um, sour. In fact, most sourdough bakers hate the, the fact that we call it sourdough oh. because it doesn't have to be sour. Um, and we even do, so we don't use any refined sugars, any wheat goes, any grains in general go through some sort of a process to detoxify them and make them more easily digestible. Uh, wheat always is sourdough. Um, we, any nuts or seeds we soak. Uh, we don't use any industrial nut or seed oils. I mean, the list goes on and on. But right. as far as sourdough goes, even our pa- we do do pastries. We do uh, croissants, hundred percent wild, long fermented sourdough croissants that are not it's sour. It's been whatsoever. so long since I've had gluten that I I don't know if I'm gonna. I, I may have to breathe into a paper bag. Do you ship to other states? We do ship. Uh, we're, we're we're boosting our shipping, but the, the the dangerous thing with sourdough for people to to really we, and listen, we have a lot of customers that have a gluten sensitivity that do absolutely fine on our bread. And I'm going to say something that's very controversial and people are going to attack me on this. As if you haven't already, <laughs> but go ahead. Um, we have two customers that claim to be celiac that do fine on our bread. Wow. Now, I, it's not across the board because we have people that are celiac that can't do our bread. Right. Um, but I have found just a few. There are some studies that are coming out now that suggest that real traditional wild long fermented sourdough bread made properly um some people that are celiac can can deal with now i don't know the specifics of it but i will say that one of the issues in the sourdough world and again i hardly eat any grains at all and i hardly eat any bread even though we make a lot of it i do believe in it as a food that is the safest and most nourishing version possible of the category of bread. yes, yes. but the problem with sourdough is there is no regulation anywhere in this country that says you have to meet these requirements to call it sourdough. Almost everything in the grocery store that says sourdough on it is not actually sourdough. Right. And hasn't right. been through it. You either should make it, has it yourself. Vinegar. That's it. Right. It just has some vinegar. Yeah. They just, they add something sour to give you a flavor that you're expecting yeah. as a consumer, but it hasn't gone through the ferment, the real fermentation process that uh, is required to actually make it sourdough that actually makes it safer and more digestible. 
Okay, we have to drop the mic here because we're going to have to have a part two and a part three. I mean, because clearly in eating like a human, I have an idea of what you do and what you don't do. But everyone else can go to your website, Mm -hmm. can buy the book, can move to Maryland to eat at the bakery and be a student of yours. I don't think that's asking too much for my listeners. Actually, listen, if you're I I will tell you, everybody we have. Um, we're located on the eastern shore of Maryland, which is in a really beautiful, we're in Chestertown in a beautiful, old, historic rural area. Um, wow. But we're not that far. We're only in, a little over an hour from Philadelphia, an hour from Washington, D.C., oh. a couple oh. hours from yeah. New York. So it's very easy yeah. to get to us. And we have people that come from all over. And please That's come so stay the weekend. It's great. Mm-hmm. We do do internships. Um, if anybody's interested, we are <laughs> always hiring and we're expanding as well. But uh, please stop by and see us. Uh, we have, if you want truly the most nourishing versions of the food your family eats all the time, and that's our goal. Our goal is to replace the foods that people eat every day with the most nourishing versions possible. Come and see us at the Modern Sunday's Kitchen. So uh, dandelion soup on the house today. We I'm have- trying to think of the things you're foraging for <laughs> that, that I might get here. Those little berries we get sometimes that I don't know if they're poisonous or not, but I guess you'll figure that out. Bill, you are a tremendous guest. Uh, no wonder you got your PhD. You're a bulldog and everything. I mean, you don't you don't go down. You're just you're going to fight and fight and fight. Uh, what was your total weight loss? Because I saw pictures of you when you were chubby, Bill, and you're spit, Bill. Now, uh, sixty pounds probably. It's a lot of weight. Yeah, and it's a lot of head weight too. You know, it's Absolutely. a transformation. And the, the, from a mental perspective, seeing the weight come off is fantastic, but I, and it's hard to see, it doesn't come through on a camera, the way that I feel, the way that I sleep, the way that I feel, get up in the morning, that's, you can't put a price tag on. Totally agree. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher said podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review. Won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.